Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 80. Super fun and casual interview today. I chat with engineer and producer Tim O'Sullivan about things to keep in mind when building a studio, the importance of a great headphone mix, managing and booking a commercial studio, having unique instruments around to inspire the band, and the downsides of thinking of the artists you work with as clients. Quick warning, this won't be one of my typical intros, so I'm sorry about that. Thanksgiving is coming up this week, for our U.S. listeners at least. I feel like I've got to keep with that tradition and drop a few thank yous in here. First, obviously, thank you to all of you who listen and subscribe to this show. I am so grateful that there are as many of you as there are. I am super blown away by it. I'm even more thankful for those of you who are sharing the show, sending me messages, donating to the Patreon, telling your friends, etc. Your support does not go unnoticed, so thank you so much. Next, I've got to drop a special thanks to my editor, Stephen Boyd. He's basically making this show possible at this point. This year has been pretty crazy for me with my normal mixing workload, the podcast, and now the addition of my daughter into the household. So having Steven on the team literally allows me to sleep. So thank you so much, Steven. Finally, thanks to all of my guests. I know some of you are listeners of the show, so thank you for sharing your stories and taking the time out of your busy schedules to come and hang out with me. I really appreciate it. Okay, so now on to an update about the show. This is the last new episode of season two and of 2022. There will be some replays that I'll repost, but there won't be any new episodes. I really hate to leave you hanging for a little more than a month without new episodes, but my priority right now is season three. And so what's different about season three, you ask? Why do I need some lead time to get it going? Starting in January of 2023, the podcast will be available on YouTube in a fully produced video format. My goal is to find the most compelling way to have a video podcast that I can. It won't be like an hour of side-by-side video like you're expecting. I intend to try my best to compete with the quality of content up on YouTube, which is high. Currently, I'm doing this all on my own, so there's going to be a bit of a learning curve for me in the video editing realm. Uh, So you'll probably see things improve as the year progresses, I hope. But like I said, I really want to create something that will be compelling to watch and listen to. In terms of the audio version of the podcast, nothing will change. You'll still get the exact same show every two weeks as you were before. So all that being said, if you want to keep up with the latest and be sure that you don't miss anything, follow the show on socials. It's at ProgressionsPod on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, Not so much action on Twitter these days. You can also easily subscribe to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at ProgressionsPod. You do need that at sign in there. So please subscribe there as well and turn on the notifications so you'll get updated when new videos go live. And spoiler alert, there will be YouTube exclusive content, so you don't want to miss that. 
And with that, I wish you all an excellent end of the year. I hope you're planning and setting yourself up for an epic 2023, and I will see you then. Today's guest is producer, engineer, and mixer Tim O'Sullivan. Tim's credits include artists such as Chicano Batman, Raylan Baxter, The Head in the Heart, Grace Potter, and Leonard Cohen. His career has involved bouncing around between freelancing and working on staff for various producers and at studios such as Capitol and Barefoot Recording. Currently, he's working out of his brand new studio space in Los Angeles, which he just finished. So we'll definitely get into that. Fun chat today. Welcome to the show, Tim O'Sullivan. Hey, man, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Good to see you. Yeah, dude, it's been a long time. I feel like the last time I saw you in person, I was getting ready to propose to my wife. Yeah, you, me, and Joe got a drink and you were telling us that you were you were about to do it. You were kind of nervous. Yes. Now I have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> And there's been a pandemic, so it's been far too long to live in the same town and not see each other. That's crazy. It happens. I have a good friend from childhood who lives here, and we were talking, you know, when was the last time we saw each other? And he said when um, when his wife was pregnant, she wanted him to get the hell out of the house. And he's like, go, you're driving me insane. Go have a drink with Tim. And I was like, oh, my God, man, that was a long time ago. How old's your kid now? Five. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, time disappears, man. The older you get, you get busy. But yeah. busy's good. Busy's good. The right kind of busy, at least. Um, dude, this is going to be the last episode of season two, so. Awesome. You know, and we know each other, so I'm like slightly underprepared. So this is going to be either a lot of fun <laughs> or there's going to be a lot of edits, one or the other. Nice. But let's talk about your studio first, because I know you that's like been your focus and I know you're really excited about it. Yeah. You've sent me a bunch of pictures. It looks great. Like, how long is this process taking to get this thing put together? Well, you know, I've worked at a bunch of different studios. I've put together a lot of studios for people. I've run studios. I've I've done a ton of installs. I've done a ton of refurbishments and, you know, and upgrades to studios, builds in existing spaces, builds in new spaces. And this is kind of the first time that I've done, you know, I've I've worked out of studios I was renting or that I was on the staff or, you know, situations like that. This is the first time I had like a blank slate move into a spot and do it the way that I wanted to do it. And it's just for me. That's awesome. It's not a shared situation. It's not a situation where I'm booking it out commercially as well. It's just for me and the people who want to work with me. And that's been really exciting. And um, I moved in here about a year ago. Spent a bunch of time touring with Chicano Batman. Done a couple of Atmos builds like for Greg Wells and then helped out on Chris Lord Algae's build and a couple other, couple other Atmos installations. And so it was a busy year. And then, you know, I'd also always been the guy that like had a studio and only worked out of that studio or like was on staff somewhere and people would come there to work with me. I wasn't like booking rooms around town and, and working out of different spots. But then over the last year, right after I moved into this place, I kind of started doing more of that. Yeah. So about two months ago, I decided to just to take a break and just focus on building out this place or else it was never going to happen. I know that feeling. Yeah. So I've just, I've been deep in that for, you know, a while and it's, it's been really amazing. And I've been able to do a lot of things that I've, you know, and there's, it's still an ongoing process. Like I have some acoustic treatment that's going in soon, still doing small things here and there. I just repainted the bathroom the other day, like, you know, but it's, <laughs> it's nice to be able to do all the workflow things that I wish I had had, all the creative things that I wish I had at, at other places, you know, all the, the little frustrations that pop up when you work in a room for a long time and you're like next time I'm going to do this differently and just to be actually be able to apply that and to like be at a point where I have the experience to reference those things and then like and have solutions for them. 
Yeah. Well, that's actually one of the questions uh, in standard progressions fashion. I've just, I've started at like the end of my, my questions list here. But uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you is from all your experience putting studios together, like you said, you've done, you recently did a room for Greg Wells. You've done a lot of Atmos installs. You and I both worked on multiple rooms at Capitol when they were getting done. That's right. What are some of the things you think that like people forget about when they're going to set up their own space? And what are some of like the things that maybe surprised you that you've done for people in installs and been like, God damn, that's genius. Oh, we've got a cat. <laughs> yeah. There's a cat on the console. <laughs> I mean, that's the first step is making it feel inviting and, and homey and having a cat and <laughs> having coffee and snacks and a couch that's comfortable, but not too comfortable. Like you don't want people to fall asleep sitting on it. You want to be able to sit up and work, but also like not be in pain from sitting on your cheap couch all day. That's right. No, I mean, the serious answer is I've also helped close a lot of studios. Unfortunately, studios, you know, sometimes they have a lifespan and people move on for whatever reason. They move into a better situation. They, you know, their career is taking off. They need something bigger. And sometimes it's not such a happy story. Right. But the two things that I think people forget about that are the most important is parking and takeout. <laughs> of all the studios I've seen close, those things were always wrong. They didn't have parking and they didn't have takeout. They seem like such minor things, but no one ever thinks about that. I mean, it comes down to just like location is always important. You want to be close. You, you don't want to be so far out that people don't want to actually drive to go work with you. Yeah. You need to be close to your clients. You need to be close to where they want to work. And there needs to be some decent, a couple decent food options that are nearby and quick and aren't going to interrupt the flow of the session. And there needs to be plenty of parking. That is true. And people don't think about those things necessarily, or they think it's a minor inconvenience. But those are the things that lose you clients that people don't verbalize. They're just like, we're driving around looking for a parking spot all day. And then like having a parking spot You've worked at big places like Henson and Capital, and like even when it's like a smaller private little studio, when you drive into a place like that and they have your name on the parking space, it's a huge thing. And I do that for clients here. Oh, nice. We did it at Barefoot, and it makes them feel like I'm important. It's important to these people that I'm here, and it makes them want to come back instead of stressing about, am I going to get a parking ticket? Do I need to go move my car? Is my car going to get broken into on here? That kind of stuff. I've been to that studio as well. <laughs> Just, you know, parked on the street in LA is not necessarily the best scenario. No. Well, yeah, I, it's actually, of all the things I thought you were going to answer that question with, that is not the one. Because <laughs> well, it's, the, it's the one thing that nobody ever thinks about. It's so true. I could talk forever about gear and like having it and the importance of having like a good queue system and stuff like that. But those are the two things that I've seen close more studios. Number three would be the headphone system, but that's true too. That's, we can get into that. But the parking, like, I'm just like thinking of studios I've been to and there's like so many where it's like, okay, drop your speakers off or your gear. And then you got to go like two blocks down, park there. And then you got to walk back three o'clock in the morning. You're done. Then you got to go get your car. Then you got to drive it over. Then you're double yeah. parked while you load it in. And that stuff is so annoying at the end of the day. And it's such a buzzkill. Like when you're like loading in. And it, it kills the momentum that you had at the end of the day of like, wow, that was a successful day. What a, a great, amazing session. Yeah. And it, it kills that moment. And you're, the last thing your client's thinking about when they get home isn't, oh my God, I really enjoyed working with Travis. I really enjoyed working with Tim. It's, 
I'm so fucking exhausted because I just had to load all this shit two blocks down the street. Yeah, that's true. That is true. And I've definitely been at those places where you got to fill the meter too. Yeah. And like, do I need to move it? Am I going to take it if I just fill it? And then no one's focused. No, because there's always a timer going off. Like, I got to move my car. Middle of vocal take. And I've heard so many interviews and podcasts where people talk about like how important it is to make sure that everyone's being creative and they're not watching the clock and they're not thinking like, oh, we only have this day. Nothing reinforces that feeling more than having to feed a parking meter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned headphones, let, let's do one little wiring thing. What, what do you think the best headphone system is? Like, uh, do you have a preference between all these like Ethernet ones versus like just a good old fashioned analog stereo cue? Like, what do you think works for 99% of people? I think it's important to be able to have the ability to feed everyone just a stereo cue. And to be able to do it separately. So, uh, like, I like to have a vocalist working in the control room with me. Yeah. And even if I'm recording, like, live with the band, I'll have the vocalist right next to me, and we'll both be on headphones. And usually I want the vocalist listening to my mix. Nine times out of ten, they have the most things to worry about. They're the mo- it's easier to just give them their own mix, and they're also standing right next to you, and you can, you can adjust that for them. Yeah. And then have everybody else on individual cue systems. You know, the important thing is that they work, that they have enough inputs that you can actually have some control over it and you're not taking up all your inputs with a talk back and a click and things like that. Like you have enough inputs that you can do those things and give people everything that they want. I try and do everything I can to like pre-mix what's going into those as much as I can. You know, things are EQ. You're not just giving them a flat. They have control over it, but things are rolled off and things are like, so that they can actually make a decent mix out of what yeah. you're giving them. Yeah. So I do as much of that as I possibly can, you know, and then it needs to be something that people are familiar with. So I use the older Aviom 16 channel mixers because they're cheap. Everybody knows them. They use a single Ethernet. And I make sure that I have, I have Ethernet lines run all over the place to anywhere that I might want to plug them in so that I'm, the, no one's having to daisy chain them. No one's losing. Because when you do daisy chain them, you have to put a power supply on, and then the power supply gets unplugged, and no one under no one, no musician <laughs> playing in your studio should be having to think technically enough to notice that that's why their headphone system came unplugged. Like that's your job, right? Right. But no one's going to catch that, and so it's better just to avoid it instead of the panic of like, why am I not hearing anything? And then they're aggravated, and then they don't trust their headphone mix. Like just avoid that. Run a bunch of lines everywhere so that you're not daisy chaining. Yeah. The Behringer system is great, too. I've installed that at a lot of places, but sometimes that mixer is a little bit more confusing for people. Mm, yeah. The Hearback systems are okay, but they're, you know, I think they're only eight inputs, which is not enough for what I usually want to do with them. Yeah, they run out quick. But, you know, the important thing is that they work. And, like, I know the Aviom system really well, so there's only a handful of things that can go wrong with them. I mean, that's really the important thing is, like, being really familiar with the system and making sure that it works. But like there's only a handful of things that can go wrong with those Avion mixers and usually it's just a dirty pot. So I have contact cleaner on hand and I spray the pots and I and I listen to the mixers be- when I'm setting up the day before and make sure that I turn the volume knob and make sure that it's not going to pop and click because it's really loud when it happens and it ruins someone's focus and it ruins their creative energy and it's not just a minor little thing. It's really important. I, I, I want to pause on that for a second because if there is something that I learned at Capital that I'm sure you took away from either Capital or one of the other studios is 
don't leave those headphone mixers at like zero. Like go out oh, there yeah. and make a mix so that when somebody puts their headphones on, there's like a listenable balance because musicians will make the craziest mix for themselves and they'll complain about it the whole time despite the fact that they have control. So just yeah, make it sound good from the start. They won't touch it or they'll push themselves up a little bit. But like you cannot let, it's just a like client 101. It's like having bagels and, and coffee when they walk in. Like the headphones should sound great when they put it on. Don't Don't waste a take while they all build it. You know what I mean? Everybody only has so much time and so much creative energy and you don't want to use up your drummer's energy troubleshooting your your headphone mix. You're responsible for the headphone mix. They have control yeah. over it. You want to use up their energy playing drums. Yep. But yeah, I mean, that was part of the setup job at Capitol. Yeah. Like when we set up at night was like building a basic headphone mix. And it was, that's so basic to me. Like that's something we were doing as runners. Yeah. And so that's that's so basic to me that I didn't even think to articulate it when I was saying, give them good ingredients for the good headphone mix. I mean, the other part of that is make sure it's clearly labeled and that you give, you know, use your gut. You don't necessarily need to have anything to listen to that. And it's like the drummer's probably going to need less drums because he's sitting in front of the drum kit. Pull the fader down. The vocalist probably wants more vocals. And you can rough mix something like that that makes sense for everybody before... It's going to happen. The, the drummer and the bass player are probably going to want a little bit more click. Yep, totally. Things like that. Yep. And just think about them so that the musicians don't have to. Yeah, and a, a, another one is just like, you know, if you, uh, you're like doing a vocal and then you're coming back like three days later to do a vocal, snap a picture of that, you know, mixer. Yeah. And then when that same singer comes back, pull it up on your phone, match it. I mean, these are like the little things that make people want to work with you all the time, but they can't really tell you why. They're like, I love working with Tim or I love working with Travis. People ask why and they're like, I don't know, it's easy. You know, it's like working with you should be easy. That's another reason why I want to do, like I'll do the vocalist next to me with their mix being built from the Pro Tools session. Like, yeah. So that that mix, which is arguably the most important to get perfect, is saved into the session. And I'm not, worried about having to recall it or anything like that. Like, I know that they're going to be listening to the exact same thing when they come back. Yeah. All right. So we've, we've started with a hard tangent about headphones, <laughs> avion mixers, and parking. We got to go. We got to go back. I mean, we've known each other for a long time, but I've never got to interrogate you on uh, how you got into this, this crazy business. Give us the quick rundown of uh, how you ended up here. Yeah, I started at, went to college at Tucson at the University of Arizona. I was studying mechanical engineering. And I was miserable and music was always a huge part of my life, but I didn't really, you know, conceive of the idea like, oh, I could have a career doing this or like what I would do. It was just, I just felt like everybody loves music, right? Like everybody eats, everybody, you know, it's just a normal thing. And I didn't, it took me to that point in my life to know myself better and to know other people more, to know like, no, the way that I am obsessive about this is, is unusual and and this is a really important thing in my life and I should, and I should chase that and getting to know myself better and realizing that, that I wasn't going to be successful at something that I wasn't super passionate about. So I ended up walking out of a chemistry final, uh, in the middle of the final, I was like, I am going to fail this. I am so miserable. I can't even motivate myself to finish this test. And I walked out of the final, walked straight to the music department and said, hi, I want to drop all my classes and switch over to the music program. And they're like, okay, uh, sure, you can do that. And you, like, 
what major do you want to do? And, you know, figured that out and ended up majoring in music theory and could like barely read sheet music at the time. I took piano lessons as a kid, you know, grew up seeing like my uncle play in bands and stuff like that and had played in some bands myself. But again, just thought like that's a fun thing that everybody does and uh, studied music theory. And then like towards the end of the first semester, realized that there was a recording studio in the basement of the school that no one had told me about. And it was just like hidden in the back and had been there for 30 years. And uh, it was basically just for people to record like grad school auditions and to re- and for professors to record projects and stuff like that. And I ended up interning there for three years and wouldn't just basically wouldn't leave. And school just <laughs> became an excuse to like be in that recording studio. That's awesome. And then uh, senior year, I, you know, entered a, the AES student mix competition and uh, told my parents that if they bought me a plane ticket to go to San Francisco to go to the convention that uh, that I would get a job while I was there and um, was the annoying kid handing out resumes and that had fucking nothing on them because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a college student. Like, it's just like played keyboards in some local band in Tucson that you've never heard of, like shit like that. And um, I was just handing them out to anyone and everyone because that was what I, that's how you get a job, right? That's the rumor. Yeah. And on the way back from the convention, I um, was at the airport bar and I saw Greg Parkin sitting at the end, who was the, the VP of Capitol Studios at the time, sitting at the end of the bar and he had a Capitol bag and I think we were on the same flight. I was talking to the, some guy at the bar and I was like, oh, you know, he saw my Arizona driver's license and whatever. He also went to the U of A and so we're talking and he's, and so I had told him why I was there and he's like, Hey, those guys, isn't capital like a big, that's like a big record company, right? You should go talk to him. And I was like, Oh no, I'm fine. And I'll, I'll buy you a drink if you go talk to those guys. So I, I make him buy me the drink first <laughs> and then I, <laughs> I fucking chug it. And go and talk to Greg Parkin and give him my resume. And he's cracking up the whole time. Like, he's like, kid, this isn't how this works. But he was like, you know, he's humoring me. And he, yeah, we're talking yeah. and he's being super nice. And at the end of it, he's like, you know what? Here, here's my business card. You know, if you're in LA, call me. And then two years later, I was in LA sleeping on my cousin's couch, called Greg Parkin, told him that I lived in, that I lived in LA now. And I was looking for a job. He didn't remember meeting me at all, but. They had just fired somebody that morning, so I got an interview. That's how you got your job at Capital? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And the first day, my first day, he made me repeat the story. Didn't remember at all. Thought it was hilarious. But, you know, it was just luck and timing and persistence. That's awesome. If I hadn't called the day that they had fired somebody, I wouldn't. Or It wasn't that they fired somebody. It was the guy. Do you remember his name? I was filling in for him. There was a guy who worked, who was working there, who was on the setup staff, who had a temp. He had visa issues. Oh, I don't remember this. He had visa issues, and he was trying to get his visa sorted. And while he was doing that, they needed someone to fill in and do the pickup runner shifts. Right, right. And that was my gig. Yes, I re- I remember that. And it was some sort of very complicated immigration situation. Like he had gone to school at USC and was trying to, and had recently graduated and was like trying to get a work visa and, and like needed to take time off to figure that out. And then obviously he never figured that out. No, I think he's still in LA. Okay. I don't, I don't, I don't remember this guy. Now I feel bad. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it was it was something. The point is, it was like something crazy like that. And you know, and I could tell a million stories of other people that I bugged the exact same way, or like other things that almost played out that way. Yeah, right, right. That was just the one little crack that I pushed through, and like happened to be, you know, it was just that was the opening. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. I mean, there's so many stories about people getting hired because they were the person that kept calling or, like, kept sending their email. You know, it's just, yeah. like, for, like, years. Like, hey, just keeping in touch. There's... A lot of people get turned off by the first no, and they're like, okay, cool. Like I said, no, it's over. And yeah. and it's really like, it doesn't matter. You keep trying politely and, you know, stay in contact. Exactly. Politely, don't annoy them. You don't want them to remember you because you pissed them off. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But when I was running Barefoot, one of the best staff engineers that we had there, the only reason he got hired is because another guy on the staff got in a car accident on the way to the session. He was totally fine, but he had to wait for the police to show up and he wasn't going to be there on time. And this guy had called me the day before and said, hey, you know, I really love the studio. If you need anybody, like, let me know. And I was like, oh, I think we're good, but, you know, I'll keep your information. And something pops up and I called him the next day and I said, if you can be here in the next half an hour, you have a session. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, that, that stuff does happen. You know, I talk a lot of shit about luck on this show, but there is like, I don't believe that luck comes into play when you're talking about like being prepared yeah. for opportunities, but there is something about like the timing of an opportunity that, I mean, you, you can't control that. No. You know, it's like that guy got lucky despite the fact that I don't like to say luck. But I'm sure he bugged other people the exact same way. Uh, or not bugged, but I'm sure he sought out other opportunities and he was in contact with other people and like, that wasn't the only person that he ever asked. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. It's not luck when you search after every opportunity. Agreed. I like that. Everybody write that one down. <laughs> well, let's go, uh, let's just rip through the rest of your career post-capital. I know, like, for a while you were working for Undertone on the side, doing stuff, right? Yeah. And then you ended up at Barefoot. What's the, like, give us the synopsis there. I mean, so while I was working at Capitol, um, I was moonlighting at Undertone. And frankly, I was just, you know, during my time at Capitol, I was, they had me bouncing around from union assignment to union assignment. Capitol is a union studio. And they had, I think they had like 60 days or something to hire you and make you a union member before. And so they, 60 days would be up and I'd have a new job title. <laughs> And this went on for about a year. And while that was happening, I was talking to another tech that, that worked at Undertone and they needed someone to help out with, with stuff over there. And so I was just doing both gigs full time for a year, hoping that somebody would make me an offer that was more permanent. Right. And I was in a meeting with Greg Pargan at, at Capital about making my position permanent. 
And Eric Valentine called me like four or five times and like kept calling. During the meeting? During the meeting. And I said, Greg, I'm really sorry. I know this is obviously incredibly important to me, but I think this is an emergency. This person is calling me so much that something's wrong and I need to check. And I, I don't know why this person would be calling me in an emergency, but like you know, family, like I was like, no, it's, it's someone I work for, but like they're calling a lot. I got to go check. And so I ran out, picked up the phone. I was like, hey, Eric, what's going on? He's like, Hey, we just sold like a whole bunch of consoles and a whole bunch of gear and I need you to quit your job immediately and like come work for us. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, uh, I'm going to have to think about that. Can I go? And I went back into, um, went back into the meeting and told Greg like, Hey, you know, I need an answer within uh, like the next week or so because I gotta, um, I gotta give Eric an answer and with the corporate structure of, of capital to formalizing that process and the hiring process. Like I was going to have to do an interview and all this shit. Right. He was just like, it's not going to happen that quickly in this corporate structure. Like you, if you have this opportunity, take it. And I did. And then, you know, at the time I was working in the archives department, six months later, everybody in that department got fired. Everybody got laid off when the sale went through uh, to, I guess that was when Universal bought them. Yeah. So it was the right move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Lucky timing there. Yeah. So then I went to work for Undertone, you know, kind of at the beginning when we were making the first consoles and making the first run on Fairchilds and did assembly and fabrication for them. Did that for about a year. And then um, they decided to transition to contract manufacturing instead of, you know, originally we were building everything in-house um, and there was a crew of us and it kept growing and growing and growing and getting more and more unmanageable. And they decided to retool things and do less console builds and do more of the rack here and then do contract manufacturers. And so I had like a kind of hard conversation with Eric and he's like, you're supposed to be out there making records anyways. Like, why are you doing this gear shit? I was like, well, it's fun. It's steady work. Yeah, right. But he was right. And at the time I was like, that's easy for you to say. You have a whole bunch of record gigs coming up and like, you know, I can't just go out in the world and start making records. Like that's, that's insane. But he gave me no choice. And that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we pause and talk about that console for a second? How many of those are there? There's only like three or four, right? We made eight, I think. Oh, you made eight. Okay. Yeah. I think we made eight in total. And can you tell our audience about it a little bit? I mean, I saw it at AES and asked if it was possible to spill a coffee into it because it was porous. But I remember that. I remember <laughs> getting shit from all the other, like your buddy had a coffee. Yeah, the surface of it was porous. I mean, I used to keep my coffee on the surface of, of when I was in the B room. Um, I used to keep the coffee on my console all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it, the, the surface of it is made out of centered metal. It's baked brass beads. It's crazy. Like AKG uses it for microphone windscreens on, on a few different microphones and stuff like that. But the idea is that it's acoustically transparent instead of having this big giant slab of reflective metal in front of you and in front of your speakers, you have something porous. And so the, you know, the effect of having that giant surface in front of, in front of the speakers is minimized. And the whole console yeah. is kind of designed around that concept, like the idea of having like a minimal footprint so you're not forced to be like, Mic pre's are outboard. The channel strip is laid out to not be super deep, like a a modern SSL or a Neve. You know, like yeah. a, like a, anyone who's worked on like a Neve eighty eight R, like you can't reach the top of the channel strip 
without standing up. It is too far. <laughs> but yeah. that means that your speakers are that far. You know, Eric's previous console was an 88R in that, in that same room that, that we built the first undertone console in. And so that was one of the big design ideas was to have the speakers be closer and to minimize the effect of the giant slab in front of the speakers. Yeah. For anybody listening that has never like tried to remove those reflections, like if you're working at a console or you have like a desk in front of you, try putting like a packing blanket in like over that surface and then just listen to what you're working on. And it's pretty crazy the first time you do it. Everybody should kind of understand what's going on with all the stuff that's in front of them. Like all those, those desks that have all the gear like in front of them, like to me are just a console. Yeah. Redesigned. Like I'm super minimal in here. Like I have, very little desk space and um i enjoy it a lot more listening uh, i just think it's better yeah i mean i i have a console these days but it's a soundcraft ghost and it's it's small yeah you know yeah, those are it, pretty small i'm close to my speakers still and my speakers are still positioned optimally and it's not this giant slab that changes the sound of my speakers a ton yeah totally i'll post links to uh in the show notes for anybody that wants to check that console out because it doesn't exist anymore so uh gotta see it on the internet you know, they're still all out there, but they're not making, uh, you know, they make rack mount versions of the, of the channel strips, which I think was always the goal. Like we made, we made that console for Barefoot's use, like for Eric's use and for Barefoot's use. And then people right. said, Hey, I want to buy these. Yeah. Okay. We'll try to sell. But I think the ultimate goal was always to sell. Like that console was never designed in a way that would make it profitable was never designed to manufacture yeah you know people want really small consoles that was the other thing that we ran into so we built this giant 60 channel console and then tried to scale it down and people wanted to buy like 12 channel or 8 channel buckets oh really interesting i mean i guess the the little api consoles sell little neve ones yeah nobody has a big footprint anymore yeah and this was you know this was 10 years ago and people were reaching out mainly inquiring about eight and 12 channel buckets. And I'm sure it's even more so now. Yeah. And I think the smallest we ever sold was a 24. Well, okay. So going back, you mentioned that, you know, you kind of were let out into the world to make records as the manufacturing changes happened. So what happened? How'd you get into just like, all right, I got to have a new income of making records. I started doing studio installs as well. Because I, I had been, I had done some of that at Capital, and I had been doing more of it at, you know, at UTA and building these consoles and stuff like that. And Eric actually recommended me for a couple, like a few days after we had that conversation. And so I did those, and then went on tour with this band, um, Maximum Headroom. That, that they're not really around anymore, but they were. Um, we did a run like opening for the Yeah and I went on tour with them as a keyboard tech, and that was a an artist project of this producer Sam Spiegel where we had a bunch more tour dates and they all got canceled I panicked reached out to every client that I had and, and booked a whole bunch of like studio installs and a whole bunch of work like that and then like a few days later after I had committed to like all this stuff for like the next year Sam called me and was like hey you know I really enjoyed working with you on tour I want you to be my full-time engineer now nice and so I hired a bunch of people to like help me out with the installs and then did both of those things full time for four years. Note the outsourcing. <laughs> yeah. Love it. I love it. It was the only way that I was able to get those installs done is I, you know, I had like four or five people working for me. And then I would, um, having the two things made being freelance 
possible. Yeah. If anything slowed down, I could dip my foot into the installs or if I it was in between records or something like that, I could I could take on more of the install work myself. But I had a pool of freelance people working for me that I could and working with me that I could scale up or scale down depending on how much of the work I needed for myself without putting anyone out of a gig. Right, right. So, and, you know, and could just take on more installs. And so I did the two of those things for a long time. I've only kind of recently decided that I'm not going to do a ton of installs anymore. I've only been taking on installs that I can do by myself. Right. Uh, I didn't realize you got connected to Sam because you guys were on the road. I feel like I've encountered more and more people that have made like lasting engineering, mixing, and production clients through being on the road. Yeah. And there's always been a part of me like when I was coming up where it's like, oh, don't go on the road. You're never going to like end up in a studio. And I feel like that's not necessarily true anymore. What do you, what do you think? There are still weird distinctions between live sound world and the studio world. I've certainly run into situations where like my studio experience isn't super respected in the live sound world or it's like I've done way more complicated things than this. I, I've got it. But the live sound world and the way that those gigs are, any live gigs I've gotten have been through relationships with artists. Maybe that's the difference. Yeah. Like the touring work I did with Chicano Batman, I worked with them in the studio first and then became friends with them. And then they called and said, hey, we need a person to do this. I think if you're in the live sound world in the traditional way where you're like, you have a relationship with the with the touring management company or booking managers or with the venues that maybe is not going to lead to studio work yeah but every bit of live work i've done is because i had a relationship with the artist and that sort of led to relationships with other like you know i worked on the recent yeah yeah yeah's record and like and i know them because i went on tour with a band that was opening for them for 2 weeks in 2013 yeah but because my relationship was through the band instead of I actually got to know them. Yeah. I think that's probably the difference. There have been situations in the live sound world because I didn't come, because my relationship is with the artists as opposed to the management company where they'll, they'll be a gig that I've wanted and they'll hire someone that's from the pool of talent that they're comfortable with working and, and is a safe bet for them as opposed to someone who's, you know, buddies with the band which is how it can be seen in that but then i've also been hired by those same people that that weren't excited about me doing some larger role on the road to do a much better paying larger role in the studio (laughs) with the same artists so it's it's kind of weird how those those things work yeah, you know, I think while you were talking, I think I, I probably should have rephrased the way I started the question because you're, you're right. It's about the relationships. And I guess if you're on the road doing front of house and you're on a different bus than the artist, like you're just out there doing front of house, if you're keyboard tech or you're the bass player or whatever, like you're, you're building, like there's, you know, you build a strong relationship on the road with people 24 hours a day for a couple months. Yeah. So yeah, it's not surprising that when you get off the road, somebody's like, hey, who's this bass player would be great at producing a song he was playing me these tracks he did or whatever and so there is something it, it, it always comes back to relationships you know in the end yeah and if you have the right relationships and you're then you're good to go yeah and, and you, you got a point there too if it's like if it's like a huge production and you're on a different bus 
then. In a different world, like, yeah. Then the relationships that you're going to build are with other people that do that kind of work. Yeah. And you're going to get, you're, you'll get work and you'll get calls to go be on another bus with, you know, and if that's what you want to do, that's fucking, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. But there, yeah, there's something about like, uh, if you can build a relationship with the artist or like the MD who also produces records or stuff like that, that's how those things kind of like, because people like to work with their friends. I've been talking to a lot of people about this. It's like, you know, who mixed this or who mastered this? And you're like, so-and-so. And you're like, oh, I don't know that guy. And you're like, oh, he does all my stuff. He's like my best buddy. We've worked together for like 10 years. I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, th- because that because people like that comfort. They like to work with the people that make them comfortable. They're used to it. So yeah, you know, as usual, yeah. relationships win. Yeah, I'm not going to say that I haven't gotten exciting gigs or fun or gotten to work on, you know, music that I'm really proud of because someone heard something that I did and liked it or because of a relationship with a label or a management person because that does happen. But the most exciting stuff I've gotten is because I was friends with someone in the band. Yeah, totally. And I worked with them before and they liked hanging out with me and they can trust me that way. You're going to be in a room with somebody for 12 hours. They got to like hanging out with you. Yeah. You know? It's, I, I've said it before, it's like, uh, uh, being the best at the job is not the most important part, you know? That's how you get repeat gigs. When you see a lot of really successful engineers and producers that have a really diverse credits, but you don't see them working with the same people again. Yeah, right. Sometimes that's because they, they're the big hot hit maker and they're busy and they get to work on some stuff, but there's something to be said for like when you see someone working with the same people all the time. Yeah. It usually means that they're a nice person. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> or, or everybody involved is just really mean and they like to hang out with each other. People give you a shot if you're the big hot hit maker, you know, you can get to work on some cool stuff, but there's just something to be said for the repeat, getting to really build something with someone. Yeah. People, people coming back says something. Yeah. I, I wanted to jump forward because I have a question that we kind of chatted about before we started that I think would be interesting. You eventually ended up going back to working for Eric at Barefoot but Mm -hmm. as an engineer and studio manager and booking. I'm curious to know what you took away from that experience of managing that studio and booking that studio that you think applies to like you as a producer, how you get work, the relationships. Like, what did you take away from that? Because I think that's an interesting thing that most people are never going to experience, but I think it's valuable in, in building a client roster. Yeah, I mean, I came back to Barefoot because... Studio B there was available for rent. And so I called Eric and said, I want to rent Studio B, how much? And during that conversation, it was like, well, what are you doing with the whole studio? What's happening with Studio A? And it turned out he had built a new studio at his home. He wasn't really using it. And we worked out a deal where basically I got a deal on my rent and a small stipend to be the booking manager. That was how, that's how it started out. And so I looked at it as like, My job was to, I had been freelance for a long time and I knew how to book myself. I knew how to find more projects for myself and how to reach out to people that I wanted to work with that I hadn't worked with. And I just used those same skills to book the studio because that that was all I knew how to do at the time. And then, you know, in the process of doing that for a few years, then I learned a lot about like the bigger things that you can do in a space like that to attract clients and then like building something that is self-sustaining and starts bringing in clients on its own through word of mouth and through reputation and things like that and how to empower the staff and how to make sure that, you know, the staff is an attraction that they want to work with those people 
not just, you know, we want to work in this room. Yeah. And, you know, really there it was transitioning it away from like, it had always been Eric's private studio. And so at first it, we could kind of rely on the idea of like, oh, this is a private playground and you can come in here and use all Eric's tools and work at the place that he did and that he did all these records at. And now you can do that, you know, for 1500 a day. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> but it was transitioning it away from that to like, it's its own thing. And there's this great staff here and they've made these records and don't you want to, you know, we have a track record now and don't you want to work with these people? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned like, you know, cultivating like a word of mouth thing that like kind of builds on itself. Do you have any thoughts about that? Like how an independent engineer or producer can kind of boost that word of mouth? Because I think a lot of people to their detriment just wait for work to come to them and they, they really rely on the, on uh, word of mouth. But it is also the most effective, like, you know, way to get work. Like when people yeah. are told to go hit you up, like they're already kind of sold. They're like, I'm going to work with Tim because these five guys told me to go work with Tim. Any advice, uh, like from an independent angle, how somebody might be able to get some of that going? Yeah, I mean, at Barefoot, we had open houses and, and parties and invited people. And then that was an opportunity to organically reach out to people. And that's, you know, that's something I'm planning on doing here. And like, um... I had a studio in Brooklyn for a while and there I went to, I was brand new in town, new, couldn't rely on any of my own connections, nothing like that. So I just started going to shows all the time. And I reached out to bands that I liked and said, you're awesome. And I would say, I would make sure to say something like very specific that I liked about at least one piece of their music and you know why they were awesome and that I was going to come to their show that night and I would love to say hi. And nine times out of 10, they'd put me on the guest list and be excited to see me. And that interaction didn't necessarily lead to a record, but I started going to enough shows that people started recognizing me and coming up and saying, hi, and oh, I saw you at this other show. And then I started, you know, in the course of a month, it changed me from being some new guy in town who was some LA engineer who wanted to steal all the other engineers' gigs and was <laughs> some Hollywood sellout to a local fan who was part of the scene. Yeah. And went to the shows and supported and stuff like that. And at that point, that was really important because those are the kind of gigs I was trying to get. But I guess the takeaway from that is like, just be involved, go to shows, be a fan of the music. And I constantly send emails to bands that I like or to artists that I like and say literally nothing more than half the time that you're, you're awesome. That's awesome. And most of the time I get a response back, even when it's early on in having like my first management team, I gave them a list of bands that were like, just to get to know my taste. They're like, these are my favorite artists in the whole world. This is my, some of my favorite music. And they emailed every single one of those and said, Tim loves you and would love to work with you. And I was like, what are you doing? And they, and I put really obscure stuff on there. I remember they emailed, I put this Japanese punk band Guitar Wolf on there. It was because I was trying to, I wanted to do like a noisy, dirty, it was like I was giving them a playlist to get to know my taste. And like, these are the kind of artists I want to work with. And so I put some really crazy shit on there and I got an email <laughs> back from them and they were like, oh, this is so nice. Like we're in Japan. My point is that, like, I just, that, that stuff never hurts. That stuff never hurts. And I do it all the time. And I, it doesn't necessarily lead to something immediately, but then someone maybe knows your name. And then, you know, you're, you're not necessarily going to get an email back, like, great, here's a budget and we're going to come work at your studio tomorrow. 
but you do get, you make a contact and then like years down the line, I've run into people in a session or in the, a more traditional way of working with them. And they go, wait, you're Tim O'Sullivan. You sent me this really nice email five years ago. And it was right when I was starting out and I was in this other band and it wasn't, and then there's an instant connection and it, it's like, it, it leads to something and it like helps. So I do a lot of that kind of stuff. And then I'm constantly on social media posting everything that I work on. And I do it in what I hope is a supportive, like nice way where the artists that I'm working with see that I'm excited about working with them. Yeah. And I try and do it in a congratulatory way, not a boasting way of like, I worked on this. It's always like, thanks for, you know, letting me contribute to this. Like, this is so amazing. Please go check this out. Please support the artists. Here's where you listen to it. But I do that constantly. I put like 10 of those posts up this morning for one song that came out this morning. That's awesome. But the artists that I work with, whatever size they are, it doesn't matter. They love that I do that. And then other people see it and go, this guy's really excited about the music. He's really passionate about the music. It keeps me in their heads. And even people that I've worked with for years will see one of those posts and go, wow, you worked on that. You know, I had this other thing that I was thinking about reaching out to you about doing, but they saw that post and that, that was the little push over the edge that they needed to do that. Yeah. Or I've had people that I was in bands with when I was like 18 and they were like, hey, we're, we have a new project and we actually have like some label interest. And like, we've seen over the last, you know, 15 years, all this stuff that you've been doing because I've been posting it and being really vocal about what it is that I'm doing and doing podcasts and do it and that it's awesome. And we'd love to work with you. Yeah. And so that stuff is really important. Well, and you're showing how like passionate you are about what you're doing as well. It's not like, yeah, you know, there's, there's so many people that do really well who are really talented that keep it really transactional. I mean, I think, you know, I a little bit too transactional sometimes when I'm, I'm dealing with some of my clients, but it's like when people see that passion and that fire, it's like building a relationship on the road. It, they want, they're more connected to you. They want to work with you again. It's a better experience. It feels better. It's more, it's more enjoyable. It doesn't even matter what it sounds like. <laughs> it doesn't even matter if it was a hit song. It's like, what was fun? Making this record with Tim was fun. So next time I make a record, I want it to be fun. Going to call Tim. Yeah. And then it, it reminds them that you're a fan and lets you continue to approach the work that you do together as a fan. Yeah. Like I've tried to stop saying the word clients. Yeah. Friends, maybe. Or artists or musicians or anything else. Because clients, to me feels like I'm doing my taxes or like, or I'm a lawyer or something like that. Like I'll use clients for like installs. Like that seems appropriate. But when I say, and it's not like the power of that word, it's the way that it makes me act when I say it. Mm, Interesting. Or the way it makes me think about them. But when I make that distinction of like artists or musicians instead of clients, I'm able to remind myself in every interaction of like why it is that I wanted to be in the room with that person originally. That's really interesting. And, and to notice that about yourself that you like, that you act different based on how you kind of think about somebody in your mind is interesting. I like that. It's just a little reminder to myself to do that. Yeah. I love that. 
Dude, before we go, we got to talk a little bit about making music because we haven't talked about making music. <laughs> uh, there, there's something that you that you brought up on Secret Sonics that I really wanted to share with my audience. Maybe you, well, you can elaborate because you're the guest. You're answering the questions. But you talked about some of the strange guitar Frankensteining that you do. Like, tell us why yeah. you do this weird shit and what what you think it brings to a session. Everything I've done and like the way I've laid out my studio and everything is about like things being quick and inspiring. And I think a lot of my techniques as a producer. I started producing because I was engineering. I was hired to engineer and it was a small project and there was no producer or the artist was producing themselves or like lots of things like that where I needed to find a way to help with that and not take over and not be too commanding or controlling. So a lot of my production techniques are like, I don't necessarily say like, hey, I don't like the way you're playing this part. I go check out this cool guitar. Why don't you try this guitar? It makes them pause for a second. They play a little different. They hear a different tone. I give them back their guitar half the time. Then they go back and they're approaching the part fresh and with more confidence. Like a lot of times I'll give someone another tone or another option really quick if they seem unsure so that we can go, no, that was wrong. And what you were doing was right. And then what they were doing becomes that much better because they're confident about it and we know that we made the right choice. That's awesome. I will do that a lot. When I know that it's right, I will very quickly have another option ready to go. So it's not disruptive. I'm not searching for a tone. It's just like, here's option B. No, that, that fucking sucks. What the fuck was I thinking? I'm so stupid. This first thing was great. And so I have all these bizarre ass guitars so that I can do that. That's awesome. And they're all very different and they're like, you know, they're all super playable, but some of them are really weird and they all sound very different. And the, the other reason is I had a limited budget. I had a huge toolbox of guitars at Barefoot. I didn't want to give up any of those tools, but I needed to do it in a really smart way that made sense to my brain and not spending a lot of money. Yeah. And so I got, I was really smart about the guitars that I bought. I have like 25 at this point. You know, and some of them are vintage, like, you know, really great guitars. But a lot of them are Squires that I heavily modified. Had a luthier friend of mine, Henry Barnes, who's amazing, do 90% of the work. It was just my stupid ideas. But like some of them are just off the wall, crazy things to do so that it's not going to sound like anything else. And it's going to look really bizarre. And the artist sees it and goes, what the fuck is this? And they're instantly super excited and they, and they see that one weird thing and they go, what the fuck else does this guy have? Yeah. And they instantly have this confidence and they think you're a wizard and they trust your choices so much more. And they're instantly super inspired. And it's like, I'm not Henson. I don't have a Neve or like, I have some amazing gear and some great ears. But what I can do better than those huge studios is weird shit and things that they wouldn't have thought of. And, you know, and I have some $200 squires that you know, I've put embarrassing amount of money into, but they blow any guitar out of the water that I, like my Strat is the, my favorite Strat I've ever heard, including like beautiful 60s Strats that are worth $50,000. And it, this thing was 200 bucks and every part on it's been replaced, but it's modified. I know exactly how it's going to sound. 
I mean, that's the other part is like, I have this whole arsenal of guitars and I know exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to make people play and things like that. But yeah, that's why I have all the crazy Frankenstein guitars so that I have that control. And then I'm really big on guitar tones. Like I love pedals and weird pedals and stuff like that, but I want pickups are super, super important. Mm. And I think about pickups like microphones. Interesting. And I, I'm swapping them just as often. Yeah. But then it's in an instrument. And so I needed to have like examples of certain kinds of pickups in like different scales and like different shapes that I knew guitarists would be comfortable with. I don't necessarily want to switch things up too much. I want it to be a guitar that they're, that feels familiar, but sounds like this other thing. Yeah. Yeah. So then that creates that problem. Then I was like, okay, well now I need five more of these. And I think it's a really amazing angle because there's so much psychology when you're producing a record and the inspiration thing is huge. The taking people out of their comfort zone and then putting them back in is huge. Like all of all the reasons that you're doing this are, are just really key production points. And you've like kind of just built this tool set that you can just, you know, do all these things that a lot of people don't do. Like if you're a new producer and you, you haven't made a lot of records, you're not thinking about these things. You're not thinking about like how to get the best out of a performance. You may be thinking past that and kind of you know, assuming like, well, the guitar player is playing this, so this must be the part, you know, there's just so many, Yeah, there's a lot of great things, but uh, you made me think, you said pickups, made me think about this guitar, uh, one of my favorite guitars that my buddy had, it was a Tele with gold foil pickups in it. And man, we loved that thing. Like we yeah. used that so much and it was just, yeah, if I was going to build a custom guitar right now, I would, I would call, uh, call this dude and I would order that. Nash Guitars made it. They're better than Fender's. Oh, they they make some great stuff, yeah. One of our mutual friends, uh, Joe Napolitano, I think he has a Nash P-Bass that's great. Yes, yeah. He just makes great guitars. He puts the right parts together. It put, takes the time, and they, they just sound killer. You know, the other reason that I have so many instruments is when I was first starting out, I gave my family a tour, and I was working at Capitol and at Barefoot. I gave my family a tour of both places. Barefoot was a beautiful studio and legendary. But capital was, was capital in my mind, especially when I was working there, was the best studio in the world. Yeah. They were bored. It was like I was showing them, they're not musicians. They don't understand the history of the place, but to them, they walk in and they see an empty live room. Yes. And it's like, I'm giving them a tour of an office. Like it, they're, I mean, they're like, oh, it's so nice to see where you work. And then I took them to Barefoot and Barefoot was messy and dirty and because when it was Eric's, it was all just about making music and all just about, it was just this like playground. It felt like a practice space in the sense of like, <laughs> in, in comparison, in the sense that it was like, there's trash everywhere and like things that haven't been cleaned up. And we opened up like that was a big, one of the big changes. But like, he was so focused on records that like none of that shit mattered. But like, that's how a practice space is. It's like, no, we're here to make music. And it's like, you know, the lounge was a mess and like, those things are super important, but like, I'm just trying to paint a contrast between the sterile capital and then this cool rock and roll room that Barefoot was. Oh, yeah. Especially at the time when it was Eric's private studio. Yeah. I think this was like when the Slash record was being done and there, so there was guitars everywhere and it was so exciting. And I just saw how like their faces lit up and how much more excited they were about being there. And I asked my uncle, I was like, what was so exciting about this other studio? Because like, there's 
instruments everywhere and guitars. I've never seen so many guitars. Yeah. And so yeah. a big part of it is I want all the instruments displayed, you know, and then careful there were records everywhere. And all the records that had been done, they were up on the wall and things like that. And Capitol had, you know, a picture of Frank and things like that. And they were right. exciting. But like, you know, I just realized how important that stuff was to the kind of records that I was trying to work on. And so that's why I have so many guitars and so many amps because you walk in and keyboards and stuff as you walk in and go, oh, this is a place for that. Yes. Yeah. That's something that was like always really shocking to me is, you know, because I came to LA, I started working in Capitol. It's like legendary. And like my buddy worked at Henson. So I'd go there. My other friend worked at Village. Like I, I, I would go to all these like legendary studios that are just amazing. But then when you start making records in LA, you're going to all these like smaller studios that are like a quarter of the price and there's shit everywhere. There's like four drum kits and like 13 guitar amps and like, you know, stuff's not plugged in. Racks are ruined and there's like noise and buzz, but like the band loves it. And it, it always just shocked me. I mean, I understand from like a business standpoint why studios like Capitol don't have a shit ton of instruments. Like I understand why that is. But it really, like, when you're making a record, you really have to think about, like, what kind of space does this band want to be in? Do they have, like, a very specific set of tools? They know what they want to do. We can go to Capitol. They're going to bring what they like. They're going to play it down. Or do we need to, like, design something and build something? Because if so, these classic expensive studios are not the place to go. Yeah. You've got to go to the cheaper spots with all the toys and just understand that not all those toys are going to work. <laughs> <laughs> But so I've always tried to marry the two and like have everything work, but also have a ton of stuff. Yes, I know. Well, that, that's the key. I, I just there's so many places in L.A. that will remain nameless where that's like there's you know, there's a lot of toys and your friends always like, dude, this studio is great. The roads doesn't work. That drum kit is. Yeah. Well, and then it falls on the producer and the engineer to your buddy who's the art, the musician doesn't know that that stuff's broken because they worked with a competent engineer who just had to work harder because they were in a room like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I I wanted my place to be like those rooms, but use up as little of my creative energy on that stuff. Yeah. On making sure that things were working like that. I wanted that work done ahead of time. Yeah. I got to come over to your spot. Uh, as soon as we're done with this podcast, I'm just going to come right over there. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure just done this in person. <laughs> That's true. You're You're what, like 10 minutes from here? You're probably, yeah, 20. I'm, I'm, for, I'm further up the freeway than you think. <laughs> or you don't want to give your exact address on the podcast? <laughs> no, not, not currently. Question for you. Maybe you have some insight to this. Maybe you have something to say. Maybe you don't. You mentioned that you started producing because you were engineering projects that had no producer. In those situations, did you ever navigate a production credit? Did those things work for you? Do you think yeah. like... You have to tread lightly, obviously, but do you have any advice for people that are kind of in a similar place where they, they feel like they're doing more roles than they're being credited for? I've been fortunate in the sense where I've had artists be really open to that conversation afterwards. And that's not, I know that's not the case a lot of times. Um, I've also had situations where I just had to be quiet and take the engineering credit <laughs> and then bring it up on the next record. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I've had situations where I didn't even ask and it was just, you know, cause I, I'm in a room and I'm doing whatever needs to be done. I'm not focused on what is my job title. I'm doing whatever has to happen for the record. And in a way that's not, I'm not stepping on anybody's toes, but I'm doing whatever I possibly can to help. Yeah. 
and whatever has to be done. And there's been situations where people have gone, you actually produced this record or you actually did this. And I've been fortunate that I've worked with great people that have, that have helped me out that way. And then, you know, and then there've been situations where I've, they want me to come back and do another record with them. And I, I want a production credit this time. Yeah. And that's been great. But you know, all that stuff is a negotiation and having management certainly helps to have another person to keep that from, you know, everything has a certain amount of energy and I don't want to use that up, you know, that, that energy on that relationship on those sort of negotiations if I, if I don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. But that also gave me the confidence to do that. Cause I never, I never thought I would be a producer or never thought, never sought that out. I was always super excited about being an engineer, you know, especially when we were working at Capital. like that was, that was the thing. Being an engineer was a great, honorable, like that was something to aspire to. And I've, and I've always felt that way and was super happy in that role and super happy to be in that role. But then I started, you know, it just organically happened. I was in these records and I was trying to do whatever I could to help make the record happen. And then afterwards we realized, oh yeah, well, what I was doing to help was producing. Yeah. And I was like, I liked doing that. Maybe I want to do that for somebody else. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the the most important part of what you just said is that you did whatever needed to be done to make the best record. And you didn't think about like, well, I could throw this opinion out there, but that would be production. And that's not my role. So I'm going to sit here. You know, I, I think. Yeah. I don't think anybody does that really. No, but I'm also good at like, I'm also good at like reading people and reading the room and knowing how I can make those suggestions in a way that stays within the, the expectations of my role or like what that person is ex- comfortable getting from me. Yeah. And sometimes it's just, you know, because when, when you're assisting and you're, you're first starting out and you're first getting in a room, you're told to just be quiet and don't express your opinion. And that that's valuable until you learn how to express your opinion in a way that's not pulling the spotlight to you. And that's not like, sometimes it's just expressing how much you enjoyed something that did happen in a way that's appropriate and just expressing like that was fucking cool and just pointing attention to that thing so that they have confidence and do that thing more. Yeah. And sometimes it's like finding a really polite way to step aside and be like, you know, during lunch or something. I "I really like that. How did you do that? Yeah. I mean, that, honestly, that's probably the easiest way to do it is to make it a question. That's actually, that's really interesting. Yeah. So make it a question and you're excited about it. And that's appropriate coming from anybody. Yeah, that's really good. And the whole like, you know, get in the back, sit down, shut up mentality of like the big studios is like, it's a detriment. And I think that what you said about like learning you know, learning how to express your opinion in a manner that fits the situation, I think should be the second thing that's taught in these big studios right after sit down, shut up, like sit down, shut up three weeks later. Okay. If you figure this out, you're allowed to talk in this manner. And I think that would change a lot of people's interactions and the vibe of a session and everything. I think that's really important stuff. But that's hard to learn in like a commercial studio where you have these short bookings. Yes, that's also true. That was something I learned when I was working for the same producer for four years. Yeah. And would work with artists regularly. Even if it was like one session, I would see them again. Yeah. And so then I found ways to like, usually it was like we're eating lunch and I'd ask a question and go, hey, I really like that. 
And then also I was really close with the producer. So I could say something to him outside of the context of like, you know, when we were done with the session, I could go, that was really, really cool. And he also respected, we also built up respect, but my point is that that's really important, but that's really hard to learn quickly because it's, again, it's all about relationships and that in a, in a commercial studio setting, you might've just met that person that day. True. And you don't necessarily know that person well enough to offer that opinion uninvited. Yes, that is true. And particularly now in the day of shorter sessions at, yeah. at those big studios, just because everybody's budget conscious. So it's like, you're not going to Henson for 10 weeks. You're going to Henson for three days to get what you need. And then maybe you'll go yeah. back in a couple of weeks. And then I was fortunate at Barefoot when I was acting as a staff engineer that I was a little bit less anonymous because I was also the studio manager and, you know, I was a studio manager and the chief engineer and I was doing, I was running the social media and I was, you know, I was at least somewhat visible. And so I had at least had a conversation with these clients and like talked about the project before they showed up. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond just like the setup. And then it does happen in a commercial studio. Like Steve Jenowick has that relationship with lots of people because he worked with them for decades. Literally decades. Yeah. Well, that that is, you know, I I love working at Capital, and you, you know, you probably agree. But the one thing that I do miss about that studio is the lockouts that a lot of my other, you know, friends that came to town when I came to town did a lot of records that were like a month long, two months long, because that was still happening then. And Capital's a lot of like four hour string session, two day jazz band. Like everything is quick and short and it's, it is a very different way to learn how to interact with artists. I was going to say clients, but I'm going to say artists now because Tim, <laughs> Tim brought that to, to the forefront. I think it's genius. Clients, but clients might be appropriate in that situation. It's four hours. <laughs> it's four hours True. and you are very much there just to provide a service. Uh, okay, you're right. Maybe that's why I say client all the time because that's, you know, that's my world. Dude, this is a lot of fun. Uh, I got to hit you with two more questions before we go. So Awesome. Well, I guess three. You, this, this is a new question. Even though you're in season two, you're getting a season three question. Oh, wow. That's right. This is a preview of what's to come, people. It's a super huge question. This is a listener-suggested question, and I loved it. So if you're the one that suggested it, I'm sorry. I can't remember your name, but thank you. Uh, are there any records you're listening to, any music you think people are sleeping on? Like, what, what's, what's one album or song you think people should just be checking out? That was a really good question. What have I been listening to? I just go... I think the same way that a lot of people do when I'm working a lot, I just go down rabbit holes. But they're they're always completely opposite of whatever it is I'm working on. Yeah. I, well, like the beginning of a project, I'm like putting together references and like I, I always make a playlist with the artist of things that I like and things that seem appropriate. Like if I was, the idea is always like, this is a playlist I would play like before your set. Like this is the house music for your tour. Okay. And so it's like, this is stuff that you like and you think your fans would like. And, and it's just a way for us to have that conversation. And so at the beginning of the project, I'm listening to a lot of stuff that's like in the same vein. And then as soon as we're in it, all I'm listening to is things that are completely the opposite and completely removed from it. Because I'm just focused on that music and then anything that I'm listening to, I need to like, for fun or like, it needs to be outside of that for my brain to be engaged. And yeah. So right now I'm like listening to a lot of Japanese jazz fusion, 
Amazing. Which is like the absolute opposite of anything that I would ever work on. Well, hey, you know. So I'm listening to Cassiopeia on repeat. This, amazing. Like, just everything. Just all their stuff, like live albums and like, and it's amazing because it's so square and so not cool in the least like white way possible. It's this whole other kind of not cool. <laughs> but it's also like, there's so much just passion behind it, this not cool thing and incredible chops, but like, well, I'm going to insult you a little bit because I've got you into Berkeley, but it's not, it's, it's not fucking Berkeley chops. I don't have those, by the way. But, but you know what? It's like, there's no... I know the type of chops you're talking about. It's like the difference between Thriller and Toto. It's the same band. And one of those records is really cool. And one of those records is not cool. Um, but I guess my point is, like, it's not that kind of, like, square, white, not coolness. Right. But it's its own thing, and it, I don't understand it. Like, I don't, I'm talking completely out of my ass, but this is just my reaction to it. And it's so fun. That's awesome. And I think it's because I don't know anything about this world other than just listening to these records. Like, I don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to look behind the curtain. I feel like yeah. it would ruin, would ruin it for me. That's amazing. I am it's super glad that that's where this question has gone, so... <laughs> Uh, so more of that to come next season, people. Um, all right. So the last two questions, which I, I'm pretty sure you you know, um, the first one being, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Yeah. I mean, a few times. When I was working at Capital, the dream was to be a staff guy and just stay there and build a career and do those kind of sessions forever. And I very quickly realized like when John Bryan was there and had a lockout and I saw like more to me, at least more exciting projects and like these records that were experimental and exciting things. And then saw some of these outside engineers that didn't come from that path. I realized how much more exciting that was to me and how much better I would be at that version of it. Yeah. Than being the staff guy. And so at that point, I, I definitely redefined what, you know, what my goals were. I like yeah. wanted to be like the freelance guy out there making records not yeah. just doing sessions. I wanted to be making records. And that that became really important to me at that point. You know, and there were also points in my career where I thought I was going to be a tech because I was doing a lot of that kind of stuff and I came back around to like, I really need to be doing records. There were points in my career where I was just taking any gig that I could get. And that was really important at the time to just go like kind of what we were talking about with luck and I found a crack and I pushed through and I did that thing. And one of those cracks was installs and doing these big studio builds. And that opened a lot of doors for me because it got me into a studio when it was first starting out. It put my face out there. It made me, it you know, got me a lot of clients. It got me projects. It wasn't getting me a lot of artists. Yeah. It wasn't, it got a point where a lot of my, a lot of the people that knew who I was and knew what I could do were other engineers. Are you telling me engineers don't hire engineers? They do sometimes. I mean, sometimes. I had a long, I had a long part of my career was where I was engineering for other engineers or engineering for other producers. Yeah. Or I was working as their assistant or I was like, and I still do that for some people. And I did a bunch of that for Andrew Wyatt this last year. And I still do that, but that only 
leads to knowing other people that are going to hire that same situation. Yeah. So doing installs would like, okay, there's a new studio. We need someone to do a session here. Well, the guy who wired it, he's the only engineer we know who already has a key. <laughs> he's going to have to tell the whatever engineer we hired how it's laid out. I'm going to just call that guy. And that happened a lot. And that was really good for me and opened a lot of doors. But it, stopped, it reached a point where it wasn't opening doors anymore. It was just more of the same and was just leading to more installs. And so that stopped being success. And I had to start saying no. Yeah, those are all really great points. I love all that. And the last question before we, before we part ways, what is your current biggest goal? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? My current goal is just to do a lot of really great records here in this studio. And the next thing I'm going to do right after we get off this podcast is I'm going to go to the hardware store and get a couple screws that I need for my console. I got some new end, I got some new end caps and they didn't come with the Allen bolts that I need. Okay. So that's the next little small step I'm going to take to doing more records here. That's awesome. That's good. Please um, share with people where they can find you, website, uh, or whatever, whatever you want to share, records. I know when we're listening to this, the Raylan Baxter record that you worked on will have just come out. Yeah, uh, it comes out November 4th. Yeah, so people should check that out. It's been out for a couple of weeks when you're listening to this. Uh, but yeah, go for it. Share whatever you want. Uh, so the Raylan Baxter record uh, that I produced with Raylan, it's called If I Were a Butterfly, and it's been out for a couple of weeks now because we're talking from the future. <laughs> And uh, please go check that out and listen to it. I'm really, really, really proud of that record. Um, it was a lot of, I think for both Raylan and I, a lot of things that we've, ideas that we've built up over the years that we wanted to apply and really got to like swing for the fences and do everything. The, the instrumentation on it is insane. And like we, you know, there's two songs with a bass harmonica on it, which is nuts. And it sounds incredible. But like, all the silly like little dreams and ideas that we, I think that both of us had had about making records, you know, we're both about the same age and been doing it for a while to be able to, you know, him as the artist and, and me as a producer and engineer, like to be able to do all those things was really, really cool. The best way to get a hold of me is that my Instagram is, what is it? I'm going to see if I can find it faster than you. Tim O'Sullivan music. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Tim O'Sullivan music is my Instagram. Sullivan audio dot com is my that's my website but the easiest way to get a hold of me is probably through instagram there's a link to my email address and all that fun stuff cool awesome dude it's been so much fun um we we gotta hang out yeah sooner than later we'll make it happen sounds good throw one of these parties at your studio you're talking about we'll invite all these people listening <laughs> by the time this podcast is out the party will have happened <laughs> we we could talk about the party now like it did it was great like it did happen so many people showed up it was crazy <laughs> the studio actually burnt down. During the party. During the party. Everybody's dead. Tim retired. I'm dead now. This is my ghost. And we, we, we've digressed. Uh, luckily, we can keep this in. And uh, yeah, awesome. <laughs> Tim, it was good hanging, man. I, I really good enjoyed hanging. this. That was really fun. So that's it for episode 80 and a wrap to season two. Thanks to Tim for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you. And on that, I will see y'all in the new year.